Alice Grayson was to bake a cake for the Baptist Church ladies group in Tuscaloosa, but she forgot to do it until the last minute. She remembered it in the morning of the bake sale, and after rummaging through cabinets, she found an angel food cake mix, quickly made it while drying her hair dressing and helping her son pack for scout camp. While she took the cake from the oven, the center had dropped flat, and the cake was horribly disfigured, and she exclaimed, Oh dear, there is no time to bake another cake. So being creative, she looked around the house for something to build upon the center of the cake. She found it in the bathroom, a roll of toilet paper. She plucked it in and then covered it with icing. Not only did the finished product look beautiful, it looked perfect. And before she left the house to drop the cake by the church and head for work, Alice, her, Alice worked her daughter and gave her some money and specific instructions to be at the bake sale the moment it opened at 9.30 a.m. and to buy the cake and bring it home. When the daughter arrived at the sale, she found the attractive, perfect cake had already been sold. Amanda grabbed her cell phone and called her mom. Alice was horrified. She was beside herself. Everyone would know. What would they think? She would be ostracized, talked about, ridiculed. All night, Alice lie awake in bed thinking about people pointing fingers at her and talking about her behind her back. The next day, Alice promised herself she would not try to think about the cake and would attend the fancy lunch and bridal shower at the home of a fellow church member and try to have a good time. She did not really want to attend because the hostess was a snob who more than once had looked down her nose at the fact that Alice was not from one of the founding families of Tuscaloosa, but she had already RSVP'd. She couldn't think of a believable excuse to stay home. The meal was elegant. The company was definitely upper crust Old South. And to Alice's horror, the bake sale cake was presented for desserts. Alice felt the blood drain from her body when she saw the cake. She started out of her chair to tell the hostess all about it, but before she could get to her feet, the mayor's wife said, what a beautiful cake. Alice, still stunned, sat back in her chair when she heard the hostess say, who was a prominent member of the church, thank you, I baked it myself. <laughs> Alice smiled and thought to herself, God is good. <laughs> you know, we all have flaws. All of us do. And we're going to begin this series. Nick did a great job. Nick almost preached a sermon, didn't he, in the intro? I mean, that guy is solid. But Nick set it up so nicely. We begin this series called Flawed Hero. It's a look at the life of David. Does God use flawed people? We want a hero, don't we? We All of us. I mean, we don't have it on our chest, but there's something about us that just, we walk around and we, we just kind of, we have this, we exude this idea of inspire me. We need people. We need somebody to inspire us, someone to lift us up out of the mundane and, and remind us by, not their words so much, but by the example and how they're living that we can overcome, that there's more to this life, that uh, we, we want to be inspired by positive people who are on the solution side of things, not just the pointing out the problem side of things. We long for a hero. And I believe there are heroes, they're just heroes that have flaws. So we study for these six weeks, we're going to study this man named David. I bet you, even if you don't have a church or Sunday school background or been hanging out in church long, if you're not really a person of Christian faith, I know that you've heard of this man, David, and you probably know him for his greatest victory, the slingshot, the rock, the slaying of the giant named Goliath, or you know him for probably his greatest defeat, lust, adultery, hooking up with Bathsheba, and the subsequent lie, cover-up, and murder. Or maybe you've heard this story, you've heard somebody use it before, you know, God forgives us, but we still have to pay for the sin. There are still consequences to that sin. David 
is probably the most prominent character in the Old Testament. Christians through the years have just idolized him. Hollywood has exploited him. Artists have sculpted him. Parents have named their sons after him. Just a show of hands. Do we have a David in the room today? Any Davids out there? We got one on the front row, second, third, plenty of, plenty of Davids. One in the balcony who didn't raise his hand. Come on, David. <laughs> but we got some Davids in the house. And David is, it could be argued, the most, as I said, the most prominent character in the Old Testament. He's mentioned more than Abraham and he's mentioned more than Moses. And that the character mentioned most in the Old Testament 600 times is also the last one mentioned in the New Testament. Revelation 22, 16. Uh, Jesus is of the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Twelve times, there's that number again for your numberologist. Twelve times Jesus is mentioned to be the son of David. Today, the nation of Israel, they fly their flag, and there is the emblem of the star of David. And we're going to come to know him, if you don't already, as a skillful musician. Thank God for a a book called The Psalms, right? Because it'll catch you, it'll meet you at every emotion that you have, high or low or in between. Thank God for the skilled musician. Not only was David a skilled musician, he was a formidable warrior. He was a poet. He was... A statesman leading Israel through some of its greatest times of peace and economic prosperity. This is the David that we know, but David was also, thank God, hallelujah, he was also human. Now, let me be honest with you. I thought about it this week. If I was writing a book and calling it the Word of God, I would present a different set of heroes to you. Would you? I would kind of edit and airbrush and gloss over. I would change things. I would alter things a little bit. But God doesn't do that. God not only, not, not only does he not hide and minimize the flaws and sins of his leaders and key characters, he, I believe, maximizes them. I believe he magnifies them. Moses killed a dude. Peter was, for a season, a whiny coward. Paul signed the death certificate of innocent people. Man, I'm leaving that stuff out. What about you? But God does that. Why? He does it because I think he wants us to know that it's about Jesus. Look, I think the church, in fact, it's clear. I could cite chapter and verse. I'm not going to. But we are to obey our leaders and respect our leaders. And I think every organization or team, whether it's educational or whatever it is, church especially, ought to have godly men and women who are leaders. And we ought to be able to do what Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. We need that. That's good. That's healthy. But we need to be transparent and we need to show our flaws. And when we see a person's flaws, we can say, there's someone following after Jesus who doesn't have it together. And do you know what? Jesus covers our every flaw. He forgives our most heinous sin. And he is the one that heals our deepest wound. In fact, you're going to learn a lot about David over these six weeks if you're here or if you podcast these sermons. But I want you to know from the get-go and throughout this series to the very end that it ultimately is not about David. This series is about David, but it's not about David. Give the preacher credit for contradicting himself, okay? But this is not about David. It's not about Saul or Samuel or Goliath or Bathsheba or Jonathan or Absalom or any other characters that we'll read about today and in these next few weeks. It's about Jesus, the one who, as I said, 12 times is referred to as the son of David. The one who is the king without flaw, who takes care of our flaws. 
So I want to introduce to you David the way the Bible introduces us to David. How about that? 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm not going to give you much time here. You see the passage already up on the screen, but you can turn to page 238 if you have a black. Now, I don't know about your own Bible, okay? I'm not at home looking at your Bible. I don't know your business unless you leave your journal at church. I do go through lost and found and read about some of your stuff. But otherwise, if you can grab a black ESV study Bible in front of you that a generous donor made available to us, you can look on page 238, it's 1 Samuel 16. So you can turn and have it in front of you or you can do the easy thing, and look on the screen. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peacefully? And he said, peacefully, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Concentrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he concentrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointing is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab, the first man to ever do the dab. And made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. This is where I feel like I see myself in scripture. And now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. <laughs> and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up. And went to Ramah. Here's David, youngest in his family, least likely to succeed, was the one chosen. The one that could have so easily been looked over. So let me state the obvious because we need to hear it because we don't see as God sees. You can try as hard as you want to, but you're still not going to see as God sees. You can pray that prayer every day and you probably should pray that prayer every day. God, help me to see people as you see people. But you're not going to see, ultimately, like God sees. And it is just like your God to notice the one who other people don't notice. I'm going to say it again. It's just like your God to notice the one that other people don't notice. And there is David. And you see the, you see the process. Hey, this dude, oldest brother, big biceps. He can bench, squat, deadlift, V-shaped torso, cut like a Greek god. Let's go with him. Nope, not him. How about this one? Ivy League educated, who's who in the community? Nope, not that one. 
How about this one? Great business acumen, very solid guy, Fortune 500 company he interned at. I mean, he, he can cut taxes and help the middle class. Let's go with this guy. Nope, not him. Let's go with this guy. Might be an early leadership principle that you can pull out is that the, uh, the brothers were hanging around the house and David was out in the field working. He was out working. And God, through Samuel, says, this is the one. By the way, incidentally, the Israel had been led uh, for many, 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 many centuries or years, rather decades, by judges. And there rose up when they said, hey, we don't want a judge or judges. We want to be led with a king. You know why they wanted a king? They wanted a king because everybody else had a king. How adolescent is that? Give us a king. And so Saul was the first one, and here David is the second one. And though we read these 13 verses to give you just a little bit of the background, familiar to some of you, um, I want us to highlight what Nick talked about, welcoming you to church today. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Would you say it? The 930 crowd didn't do well. Would you say it with me at 11? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Don't tell the 930, I just cracked on him. But that's what God does. That's the way God looks. My mother-in-law, for many years, would attend a, a fitness place, a workout club in the South Bay of Los Angeles. And they had a theme. The theme was threefold. No men, no mirrors, no makeup. The idea is get your fitness on without worrying about people looking at you. There's just something freeing about that, right? When we're not worried about our outward appearance. An Australian woman got some level of international acclaim this past year, Hanjal Bon. Here's a picture of her. She is a city councilwoman at her hometown, Australian hometown down under. She's a prominent person. She's educated. She's successful, but she's miserable. She's only five foot one. And she wants to be taller. She feels in a very literal way, very emotional way, that she doesn't measure up. In this past year, doctors performed a very painful, meticulous surgical procedure. They put her to sleep and they broke four bones in each of her legs. And for nine months, y'all, every day, they stretched her bones by a millimeter. One millimeter per day for nine months. And after that final surgery, she grew a whopping three inches. She now is a five-foot-four woman. And asked on a sit-down television interview just a few months ago, she said this about would she have another surgery. Han Joban said, I haven't made a decision on whether I will, in, whether I will in the future or not. I know I'll get wrinkles and put on weight, and I'll even shrink as I get older. So we'll see what happens. But I'm not fixated on self-image. <laughs> I hold in my hands two $20 bills. Trust me on this one. I see Danny Weeks looking. It's a 20. It's a 20. What's the difference? This one's clean. Virtually untouched. This one's crumpled and probably touched by many. Now I'm going to offer somebody a $20 bill. You can have one of them. One of you can. But which one would you take if you were given the choice? Which $20 bill would you choose? Most of you, Caleb, 
would choose this one, probably, right? Because it's, I mean, if you're a germ-phobe like me, you're going to go with this one. It's just this one's been passed around a little more, probably. But listen to me. Don't miss this. The appearance of the bill does not determine the value of the bill. This is a 20, right? And this is a 20. And you can go to lunch after church at Brent's and they'll take either one. The appearance of the bill does not determine the value of the bill. And I want to say to you, as we look in the future, these future weeks, that a skilled musician, a formidable warrior, a poet, and a statesman, and a man after God's own heart who showed us his flaws, this man started as a shepherd boy. And I'm telling you, David looked more like this. He was the crumpled one, the one that you wouldn't choose first. What do we know about shepherds and sheep? Just go ahead and say it, church. Not much. Get some insight to Ted Waller because you see in scripture times, there's a scholar who talks about sheep and shepherding in those days. Sheeps and shepherd, total mention in the Bible is over 500 times. But when you're in a cyber, Amazon, Google world sipping mocha soy lattes at Starbucks, you, don't, you and I, we don't know a lot about shepherds. So enter Ted Waller. The family often depended upon sheep for survival. A large part of their diet was milk and cheese. Occasionally, they ate the meat. Their clothing and tents were made of wool and skins. Their social position often depended upon the well-being of the flock, just as we depend upon jobs and businesses and cars and houses. It was important, but it wasn't the most dignified thing, and it wasn't the easiest thing. Here's what you learned about sheep, and then you lost it all. Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep. And can't tell where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. Why did little Bo Peep care about the lost sheep? Anybody raised on a farm? Anybody spent time on a farm? You'll know that farmers, those women and those men, they see those animals born and they see them die. And there's a special bond. There's a special bond between man and animal. And when one is lost, a good shepherd owns that and feels that. And here's David, a shepherd, looking out for sheep. And today at 240 Central Time, and we'll pray for this in a moment, but Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys will play a game. We'll end our service praying for a Cowboys victory and eventual Super Bowl, you know. But they don't name NFL teams sheep, do they? You saw the Seahawks and the Falcons and the Giants and the Lions and the Packers and the Bears and, you know, such Raiders, Chargers, not sheep. But sheep are defenseless because when one of them is missing, a good shepherd will know it and feel it and need to bring it back. Because what does a sheep do in an open field when a predator comes? Negotiate. (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm fluffy. I'm fat. Please leave me alone. But in that time, there were two big things, provision and protection, provision and protection. And every day, David, every day, David would make sure those sheep entrusted to his care would find a field to eat in and a stream to drink water from. And at night, he would take them out of the open field and into a pen that was made. Now, we can go to Lowe's or Home Depot or Ace Hardware and buy a pen or something like that ready-made. 
easy to assemble. Never easy for me, but for most people. But we could buy something ready-made, but not then. They made these pens out in the wild and in the open and on the move. And these pens were made out of rocks and dirt and mud and such. And there were no doors and there were no gates. And so when the, when the sheep were put in the pen, what would the she- where would the shepherd sleep? Any guesses? Right there at the door. To protect the sheep from the predators. And one night... David wrote a song that everybody knows about that you probably emotionally could think of a funeral you've been to where a preacher read or quoted from it. I quoted from it recently at a funeral of a teenager. David wrote these words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And a thousand years after David, the shepherd would write that, another shepherd would say this, John 10, 14 to 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Any note takers, write down the words provision and protection, but add a third one when it comes to Jesus. Write the word preparation. Provision, protection, and preparation. Do you think that God is preparing you for anything? Not, not all of our students are back, but some of them are. How was your break, y'all? Good break? All right. Ready to study? No doubt. Innate in every heart of Bellhaven or Mississippi College or wherever, there, there's some young people, a few of them back today, who that's why they're in college, right? They believe that there's something for them. They're preparing for something. But do you believe today, no matter your age, that God is preparing you for something? I was reading this week about Hollywood actors. Here's one. I was reading about how they prepare. Who's this? Say it. It's just fun to say, and I struggle to say it. Shyla LaBluff. You know what? This is the movie Fury. I saw it. Brad Pitt. This guy, Shia LaBluff. For six months, he hung out with the U.S. Army every day just to get ready for this role. For four months, he didn't shower. I didn't know that when I watched that movie. Could you imagine being in a tank with a guy who hadn't showered in four months? Just to immerse himself into the role, just to look like he was a soldier in World War II. This guy, who is this? It's Jamie Foxx. Thank you. You're so hesitant. You guys know I'm going to get you on a trick question, don't you? Jamie Foxx, but he looks an awful lot like Ray Charles. And if you saw this movie, oh my goodness, did he win something for this, babe? I think he won something on this, on this role. Uh, this is Ray Charles. Something's happening down front here. I don't know. But this is Jamie Foxx's Ray Charles. And for many, many months, Jamie Foxx, who's already naturally talented as a songwriter, as a singer, as a musician... He immersed himself in who is Ray Charles. He studied his life. He studied his gestures, his cadences, his temperament, his tone, his bodily movements and expressions. He learned about Ray Charles. You know what else he did? He showered, but he did take prosthetic eyelids and had them surgically sewn over his eyes for six weeks. He learned to play the piano in total darkness. His family would walk him around where he needed to go. 
for six weeks, he wanted to what? He wanted to prepare himself. Y'all, these are for movies. These are for movies. But I ask you, what about your one and only life? What about your one and only life? Can you see God preparing you for something? There's a cuss word. It's a modern day cuss word. And I'm glad you came today because I'm going to cuss in church. I'm not only going to cuss in church, I'm going to put the word up. I'm not only going to put the word up, I'm going to put the word up in massive font. You ready? Here's the modern day cuss word. Wait. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate to wait? But look at this. Sarah waited 90 years. Know anybody struggling to be a mom? That's a herd, isn't it? You had trouble. You had some holiday hangups with your family. I know some of you. I know how hard it was for you to go home and pretend around the dinner table and to hang out with Brother Larry. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. 13 years Joseph waited. Moses waited 40 years. We say Moses waited in the wilderness. I've preached that before. Moses waited in the wilderness. You know, he waited in the Sinai Peninsula. Google that. 40 years in the Sinai. That place is horrible and desolate. Google that, not now, but after church. Moses waited 40. Jesus waited 30 years. Carpenter, the formation, before the public ministry really launched. And we all know how that ended. But David was anointed, he was appointed, but he still had to wait. He still had to serve. Okay, those are Bible facts. I'm going to give you a fact that's not completely true. It's from the National Opinion Research Group based in Chicago, Illinois. Here it is. 90% of life is dull and routine. You want to fight that, don't you? I think it's true. 90% of life is dull and routine. It's why when we study week one, David, and we look at the shepherd boy, we're saying here is a youngster who embraced the obscurity. Here is the one who said, I will, Lord, I will embrace the waiting. I will embrace the working. I will embrace the learning because you're providing for me. You're protecting me. And I do believe you're preparing me for something bigger and better. And are you willing to wait? Are you willing to hold on? Do you remember the words of Jesus in Luke 16? 10, Jesus said this, if you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. If you didn't bake the cake, don't claim that you baked the cake. But the little things, the 90% of life when nobody is watching. And you're toiling in relative obscurity. That's probably the place where God is preparing you. And for some of you today, I want to say this. Two words that have meant a lot to me last year. Don't quit. Don't quit. Who's this guy? Alabama fans, you may want to just look down for a couple of minutes. Just maybe assume the posture of prayer. If you have a friend that will cusp your ears. But here's your national championship football coach, Dabo Sweeney. 
And what I loved about, gosh, I'm in trouble, aren't I? I didn't care who won the game, but once I learned more about Dabo Sweeney, I was really proud of this man because on a large stage, look at the confetti, national kissing the Sears trophy, all the fun stuff, extra money, extra money if you know about the economics of college football. He won. He had the limelight. But he has shared his testimony in Jesus. And he shared it. Some of you may know this story. I skimmed over it. I hope I get it right. But I know this, that he went to Alabama to play college football. But they did not offer him a scholarship. He wasn't an Enob and a Abinadad and a Shamu or whatever. He was David, right? They offered him, well, we'll let you come try out. He walks on the football team. He comes, came from a family with not much money. He lived with his mom a year of college. How would that be? How would that, what would that do for your dating life? Living with mama for a year. It was hard. He plays. Plays in a national title game. He works hard. The toiling, the waiting, the learning. Being faithful in little things. He wants to work at Alabama. He loses a job. His dream is coaching, and he loses a job. And for a couple of years, he sells real estate. A great profession, especially if you do well, and he did well, but it wasn't what he wanted. God, where are you? And I bet he questioned God's goodness. And as a friend of mine says, I bet you what he saw as punishment was actually God's preparation. He was faithful. And a door opened, and he walked into it. And year after year, he did a lot of things the right way. Probably if he's a hero to anybody, he's a flawed hero, I'm sure. But he's been faithful. And thank God for Dabo Sweeney, because our Alabama fans are a little more tolerable to live with, (laughs) at least until National Signing Day, right? Five-star, 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 five-star. I close by reading something that really meant a lot to me. It was written by a pastor who's, uh, I'll just say it, he's big time. And I know him. Toward the end of my senior year in high school, I took a part-time night job at a meatpacking plant. I badly needed a summer job, but when I bear-hugged a quarter side of beef and lifted it off a meat hook, it flattened me right there. It was while I was lying under a side of beef that I sensed God calling me into church work. So after one shift, I quit and painted houses the rest of the summer. Our first year of marriage was filled with so much tender, oh, I'm sorry, with so much tension and conflict that after six months, we both concluded we'd married the wrong person. I was in seminary studying to become a pastor, and yet my marriage was falling apart. Whom could I tell? Whom could we go to for help? We were isolated and embarrassed, and we thought about quitting, but we just tried to get through one more day and then another and then another after that. I failed so badly in my first preaching class that I thought about walking away from four years of seminary training and becoming a mortician so I wouldn't have to work with people who could talk back to me. No, I'm dead serious. After my first year as the senior pastor here at Unnamed Church, it was probably the worst year of my entire life. I made all kinds of mistakes. I didn't know how to lead a church of 350 people. I was in deep conflict with several people, including a key staff member. I considered quitting several times during that first year, and I wondered if I had totally missed God's calling on my life. It's taken me a long time to learn that every first is hard. First date, first breakup, first day at work, first rejection letter, first baby, first teenager, first major disappointment. When stuff gets hard, it's tempting to quit. And when you're tempted to quit, you sometimes have to hang in there for just one more day. 
Life is full of quitting points when you have to find the resolve to push through for one more day. I faced a quitting point as a freshman in college. Three days into it, I was lonely and afraid. I wanted to go home. Every time I began a new class and received the syllabus, I wanted to quit. Trying to learn Greek was a quitting point. Our first year of marriage was a quitting point. After our son David was born, we had two kids in diapers. That was a quitting point. My first year at this church, I faced a quitting point. Every Monday morning, I faced a quitting point when I sit down into an empty computer screen and I would wonder what God wants to say to me this week that's fresh and life-changing. But here's the question. What kind of person would I be today if I'd quit school, quit my marriage, quit my church, and quit my job. I'd be an uneducated, unemployed, poor, broken, lonely person without any experience, wisdom, or future. I'd never know what it's like to score a touchdown, receive a diploma, raise a family, get promoted, be part of a staff, or lead a church. I'd just be existing, maybe. To be human is to want to quit when things get tough. It's much easier to quit a bad marriage than to work through the problem. It's much easier to quit a team, job, school, church, diet, or exercise program than to work through it. But quitting stunts your growth and stops your progress. The formation. So y'all come back. We're going to learn some cool stuff about David. About this flawed hero. But the first thing I want you to learn or take away today is that this shepherd boy embraced obscurity. And through that, the waiting, the working, and the learning, God prepared him. Would you pray with me? Father, truly, truly, you will not bless the life that we pretend to be. And God, we're so wrapped up in this culture of outside in, of outward appearances, of men, makeup, and mirrors, of cosmetics and clothes and stuff to change us from the outside in. It's what we look at, but not you. You notice the ones who nobody notices, and you do your greatest work when sometimes we feel forgotten. And I, for one, want to stand up in front of hundreds of people today and say, I thank you for teaching me the value of faithfulness in one more day. And Lord, for some, some leading a family, some trying to lead in a marriage, some trying to see uh, some type of overcoming. And it, it's hard. But isn't it something what Hollywood movie actors will do to prepare? But yet, God, we don't consider the meta-narrative, the grand narrative of Scripture in our own lives of what you could be doing away from the stage and the spotlight and the glare of the public. And we're not all going to be famous. In fact, none of us in this room right now may ever be. But Lord, I lay hold that you have bigger and better things for us. For dads and husbands 
for elders and group leaders, for mamas, sisters, for women. Lord, I pray that you allow us to live in a different different arena. That the appearance of things would not determine the value of things. God, thank you for doing good work in our church. Thank you for the honor to baptize Katie today. The work that you're doing here to draw people to yourself. Lord, we don't want to be large. We want to be loving. We don't want to be successful. We want to be faithful. We want to be healthy. We want to be connected. We want to be, tell, we want to be able to tell story after story of people not quitting, of people staying the course, of people seeing your protection and provision, of people saying, hey, he is a good shepherd. And Lord, we want to hear your voice.